This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Should failed grocery startup Soupy have signed a pragmatic supply deal with one of the supermarket duopoly until it's got on its feet? Maria Slade asks in this week's Shoeshine. Maria, just outline for us what happened. Well, of course, we know that Soupy, the online grocery startup, went into voluntary administration last Monday. And it happened very suddenly, and everyone was like, well, what went wrong so suddenly? But it turns out that there was a key investor who was going to underwrite a $3 million capital raise that they, that they were seeking, that they needed. And this investor pulled out at the last minute on, on the Friday, and the directors were simply in the position of, you can't trade while you're insolvent, and so very hard decisions had to be made. And hence the administrators were called in, because the business simply didn't have the cash flow, that, and that's why they needed the capital raise. And a lot of people have criticised that the directors um, you know, exited the business immediately, but they had to do that, didn't they? They say that they had to for efficiency, really, because both the other directors are down country, and Sarah Ball, the founder, is the one that's here in Auckland, and vol- voluntary administrators had to be dealt with, forms signed and so forth, and you are effectively handing the business over to the administrators, so just for expediency they stepped back and let her handle that, but they still, you know, are supporting her and, you know, they certainly haven't abandoned ship. Mm-hmm. Um, how much was bullying by the duopoly a factor in this demise, do you think? I'm not sure it was the hugest factor, actually. Um, Soupy seemed to be running on the smell of an oily rag and I spoke to a couple of investors who looked at it as a prospect and they were unimpressed with the model. They said the P&L was, was not a pretty thing. Uh, they were very much operating hand to mouth and there were a lot of efficiencies that they, they believe could have been taken advantage of that weren't. And one of the big ones that one of the investors pointed out to me, well in fact both, was why they hadn't done a direct supply deal with one of the duopoly. It is actually possible now, the government has paved the way for that. And so okay right, you're not being the independents that's you know, you know the David and Goliath sort of thing against the duopoly quite so much if you do that, but it does allow you the time to at least offer products to your customers at the same price as the supermarkets and build some scale. And so they're saying, why didn't Soupy do that? And then start, as it got bigger, start doing direct supply deals of its own, you know, as time went on. And another enduring mystery is why Sarah Ball did not do a deal with her own family to get produce. That remains a mystery. Sarah Ball obviously comes from the Ball Brothers group, horticulturalist family, very large family, very um, big suppliers of uh, produce to the nation's retailers and it would seem from what I understand from staff at Soupy that no direct deals had been done, they were in the process of talking about it but it hadn't happened and you know a lot of people assumed that maybe that's where Sarah Ball got a bit of a leg up but it doesn't appear to be the case and you could speculate is it because the Ball Brothers group are um, a little bit you know scared of the duopoly, no proof of that but it does sort of make you ask the question. Well they are known for sort of tying up their suppliers. Do you think it is difficult overall to do a direct supply deal? It's definitely doing it the hard way. Uh, 
an operations manager at Supi that I spoke to gave me the example of, and, and he's quite an industry veteran, he said, you know, s- suppliers would try and pull the wool over their eyes by offering them pro- a product that only had a two-month shelf life. And apparently in the industry, you'd just be laughed out of town. Like the, the duopoly wouldn't accept anything less than six months. So, you know, you, you're definitely facing a lot of hurdles as the minnow that's trying to go direct. And as, as exampled with her own family, if it was really that easy, why, why hadn't it happened? So what do the authorities need to do now? What needs to happen now? What regulation? Well, there's one thing that uh, was pointed out to me by Wayne Kennelly, who runs the Kennelly Group of online uh, businesses. He does Meatbox and, and various others. He said he actually does have a direct supply deal with foodstuffs. But he says one of the things that's missing in the agreement, the, the, the grocery code of conduct, which dictates that the duopoly must deal fairly with suppliers, is those suppliers can opt out. And so there are apparently large suppliers that have opted out. So that means the independent retailers don't have access to their product. And this is something that Kennelly has said he would dearly like the grocery commissioner to have a look at. Uh, so that's just one factor. But, yeah, it just sort of goes to show, like, the incoming government has said they want to sort of look at setting up a, a third player to rival the duopoly, but it's really just not that simple. There, there's just a whole lot of regulation that needs to be looked at, not to mention having some very deep pockets. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Maria. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Mark Edwards is the founder of Edwards & Co, makers of premium prams and other baby equipment. The business has grown strongly in the last four years, although, like all consumer products, is facing a slightly more difficult year as interest rates soar. Mark joins me now, and Mark, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Now tell us about um, the difficulty of running a business like yours in this current environment. Uh, Well, I guess our target market, which is parents, are the most indebted uh, uh, age group of consumers that we have. So they two years or three years ago, they might have locked in an interest rate at 2.7%. Uh, they're having their children, about to have their children, and their mortgage has gone up from $1,500 to $4,000, say. So um, they're cash-strapped, more, much more cash-strapped than they were. So premium products like us, um, they might they might second-guess what they're buying or buy less of what they what they will for their, for their children, or maybe not have children at all. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, premium baby products is a growing and quite a crowded space. So how do you make yourselves stand out in that space? So we focus our, our mission statement is the smoothest ride possible. So uh, we want to make getting your children from A to B as easy as you can. So a lot of our competitors out there um, have really lovely marketing and they, you know, walking in the streets of London or going running in the mountains. Um, but we really focus on just the practical things. Like if you're going to fold the pram, it should only be one button you need to press to fold it. And you shouldn't need an instruction manual with our pram. So our ones are really focused on being the easiest to, to use. So you have young children of your own. How different was it or or how did it change your experience of running the company after you had your own children? Yeah, so before um, I had children, mm-hmm. I really listened to my friends and I went to a lot of baby shows. So we did a lot of stands, um, talking to customers, um, what do they want, what do they like. Um, so that's when we kind of really formed what Ebers & Co is now. Since I've had children, it's become a lot more detailed. So um, I know what being a run around parents like 
kids crying, it's raining, you're trying to get them in the car. Um, you know, so the detail around how things work has become a lot different. Um, so like, for example, I'm designing a new pram at the moment and um, my, ch- my daughter's two, so I've been using her in it. And so I've picked up a lot of little tiny little things like the canopy, it's not quite right or... Um, for her and yes so yeah yeah right very helpful practical advice um what about baby shows doing business through baby shows i know you do quite a bit through that why is that medium different or better or special uh because you can have a direct relationship with your consumers so you can you can engage with them and i i think particularly when they meet us and we can show them um how the products work and how we can make life easier for them years down the track they remember that and um they'll follow us on social media they'll um they'll talk to us and they feel like they have a a more of a relationship so uh, i would say trade shows is probably the most important thing that we do um, in terms of our sales events through the year it's quite physically demanding isn't it oh it's very tiring my dad was actually my dad's been doing the one this week so he's 75 he's been doing one in melbourne this weekend and he was just telling me how sore his legs are just (laughs) just standing there and folding prams all day yes Um, even though our prams are great to fold of course um you know does take its toll on you of course do you find a lot of men come up to you in that role or is it women um I would say it's predominantly women. There's always a generally a couple. Um, the grandparents often involved quite a lot, um, which is interesting. Um, I mean, of course, they usually have the credit card as well, which which helps the parents, <laughs> especially in this current economic climate. Um, so yeah, no, the the fathers are involved. I guess they generally have more of a technical lens. Um, I think the research is done by the the, the mother. Right. Um, they tend to know what they want, and they've seen it on Instagram. Um, it can change so they can see things on Instagram that they really liked and over the course of say a baby show where they can go to all the different brands it might change what they actually want yeah that kind of suggests that social media is very important yes social media is important and I think people would say our competitors would say Ebers and Co's popular because of they're so good at social media it's actually not true we've um we, we we were popular, I guess, in the last four years. But before that, we weren't. We didn't do a lot of social media itself. Right. But it's always a very important channel to sell in with parents. Yeah. And just finally, I mean, being a father of two young children, how do you attain work-life balance? <laughs> <laughs> if that's um, not a that's silly a good question. question. Like I, um, we're actually so we're two dads. So um, I, I I have a husband. His name's Christian. And so it's interesting how you juggle it. Um, I really look after, I do Lulu, so my daughter, get her to daycare and, and that sort of things. And Frankie, uh, sorry, Christian does Frankie, who's my oldest son, takes him to school and stuff. So we kind of split it up that way. But we've also got a really good support network. So we've got my parents who live next door. Um, and we have our our nanny, actually, who we brought in from France and um, just before COVID. And luckily, we got it yeah, done before COVID. That is lucky. Um, anyway, she's always around and she just loves the kids so much. So we all, we've got a big support network. So takes a village. Takes a village, exactly, yeah. yeah. But you can imagine how hard it would be if you didn't have that support network, and some oh, entrepreneurs don't have it. No, I know, um, especially I would say single mothers. If you, mm. There's a lot of, in the baby industry, there's a lot of single mothers who have started their brands. Um, I, I mean, I honestly don't know how you do it. Like, yeah. it's, it's I, hats off to them, I probably would say, like, I'll respect them more than, <laughs> you know, like just, just the amount of work, yeah. 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 Mark, thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
Edward Miller is a researcher and policy analyst looking at employment and other issues for First Union. And he joins me today to talk about employment trends in the supermarket industry in the week in which both foodstuffs and soupy have hit the headlines. Edward, thank you for joining us. Um, let's start with soupy, which had a rather unusual setup for its employees. Yeah, you're right. The it's it's not an unusual setup, but it probably hasn't been seen that much in New Zealand, particularly in this industry, where you separate off a whole bunch of assets from a ho- from the operating company. So maybe on one side you'll have the property, and on the other side most of the operations exist. The one side that has the property is probably the one that engages with financial intermediaries, with banks and that kind of thing. So the accounts on that are supposed to look very good. The operating company is the one that has all the costs associated with it. So really you want to starve that one of capital as much as possible to be able to make sure that your accounts look as good as possible to be able to maximize your borrowings. What's happened in this case is that they've reached a point where they can no longer trade. They don't have sufficient cash flow to ensure that they can keep trading. So they've decided, or one of the major investors has pulled the pin on the operation. Um, I tried to work out which one it was, but I couldn't quite <laughs> um, work, work out what that was. Um, so anyway, they've decided to put the company into administration, and that means that all the 100, 120 workers that were employed by one side of the operation have been made redundant, but there is no money left inside this company. It's all over on the other side, or has it been all over on the other side, which means that they were not preferred creditors under the Administration Act, and therefore were not at the top of the list to get their wages back. And they were owed at the time two weeks wages plus the other entitlements that go along with this. So they were pretty upset, understandably. Um, I think some of the representatives of our union did some media around it. Um, But what happened a bit later in the week was that this sort of angel angel popped up and decided to do a donation that was equivalent to the two weeks of wages that were owing. Um, and I, the, there is strong suspicion amongst those in the, in the community that the, the angel donator may have had some very close relationships with the company in the first place. And in the process of doing this has, you know, maybe addressed the goodwill issue and paid off the wages, but workers have been shortchanged out of the other benefits that they were owed such as uh, the annual leave allocations and these kind of things. So, yeah, the setup of this company has been done in such a way um, that you separate off the risk that's associated with employing workers away from where the capital or the property of of the company is. So you have a property company and an operating company, essentially. It's not... Uh, that uncommon in some other industries. So we see it a lot in uh, outsourced health and education um, sector, private sector, health, education and care. Um, They engage a lot with the government and get government funding for a lot of things. And they try and get the government funding to work with the operating company rather than the property company. So all the funds are sitting in the property company side and not in the operating company side. So they're always in a position where they can say, we are really struggling to provide the standard of care required under the respective legislation for those industries and therefore is there any more money available to fund the service um, without the without the government or, or the funders being able to look at where all the assets are held on the other side of the company so that's what's happened in, in Supi. Um, I Supi obviously was a kind of experimental operator in the industry disrupting that supermarket duopoly that um, that we all, all love to talk about in Aotearoa 
Um, and it had been getting really positive kind of impressions from a, a lot of people. I think there were issues that suppliers had had in their relationships with Supi, and there was some suspicion that there was that the duopoly was driving the nature of those relationships. We don't know. I think it's very sad that we've seen um, this happen and that a company that could have been a contender within a more competitive grocery market has fallen out of, of that place. Uh, but what's even worse is that, that we workers had to go through that process. And I think there will be more, I guess, diligence by the incoming grocery commissioner. Um, it makes a good, good case or a good set of arguments to ensure that that grocery commissioner has an eye on employment matters at the same time as looking at competition between the players and making sure that it's fair um, uh, fair operating between the, the major players in the industry. Right. But, I mean, it's not illegal to do it. So what can they do about it? What can an employee do about it if they know they're employed under such an arrangement? Well, in a, I, my advice for an employee would be to, to say to get a group of workers together, possibly with the consultation of, of a, a formal union, and to have a discussion with management and say, look, we understand what, what this... Uh, what the implications are of this arrangement, and we, we don't want to be a part of it. We want to make sure that there is sufficient funds to cover all liabilities. I mean, sure, surely there are regulatory changes that could be um, that could be implemented, which would achieve that. And I was wondering if there was a space actually. And Ibrahim Omar had a bill recently, and that came. Well, I don't know where it sat in the process of private members' bill though, um, around wage theft. And I thought that perhaps there could be a few possible amendments to that uh, proposed legislation to try and include situations like this, because uh, I'm sure that some other people operating out there in the market would have seen this and thought, oh, well, yeah. Okay. yeah, it worked for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. it worked for them. So maybe, maybe we could give it a try as well. Yeah. And I imagine unions would be sort of on the case if this kind of idea did come up in legislation. Yeah, and it's crucial that if there are people out there that are in these kind of situations or aware of these kind of situations, reach out to either First Union, which is the Union for Supermarket Workers, or if you don't know the relevant union, just go directly to the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions and indicate to them that you're aware that this kind of relationship exists on your work site. Um, it's not an appropriate method of organising the companies and businesses, but it's not a totally uncommon one as well. And what about foodstuffs? We've heard about their intention to merge their North Island and South Island operations this week. Uh, we've heard this week that there's an intention to try and merge those two entities, the North Island Cooperative and the South Island Cooperative. I was scratching my head a little bit about what the actual implication for, would, for this would be and what, what the motivation for this is as well. In terms of motivation, I don't know, we've seen there's some new experimental kind of foodstuffs operations going in in different places, kind of taking the um, the Foursquare brand, which has been a traditionally kind of rural, smaller town operation, and putting them into urban contexts and having them kind of quite different stores. You see one down at the bottom of Auckland City. Yeah. So I was wondering if there's more of an intention to try and bring the company together as one so that there's capital available to do these kind of experiments, probably still on a franchise model. But I think a lot of the funding comes from the the, um, the cooperative itself for the operations. So it will be interesting. The problem that we have in terms of foodstuffs is because you have hundreds of operators around the country, all individual employers. It's very. It takes a, a long time to get up density to try and uh, bargain enough collective agreements to have an impact on the working conditions across those brands. Yeah. So. First Union has been doing this for years and years. We probably would have yeah, upwards of two or three dozen different collective agreements in those operations. And obviously we've targeted 
the bigger urban operations where there's larger numbers of workers. Um, and some of those now actually have better working conditions than you have in the countdowns because the, the membership is there, the collective bargaining mechanism works, and often the ones that have really good wages have a countdown not far down the road. So those employers recently have had to compete for labor and have done that by using the standard method of putting a little bit more on the, on the wage rates. But it takes a lot of, a lot of ongoing bargaining around like pattern bargaining around the country, different organizers bargaining the same agreement every one or two years um, to try and get those the membership up. And that's why we were pushing for a fair pay agreement in this industry. There is an application that has been filed and it's progressing along through the chain. It's not it's not the furthest one along, but it's also not the slowest. There were some difficulties in defining supermarkets because New Zealand legislation has no definition for the word supermarket. So we had to have some interesting discussions with the ministry in that process. But it is in train and we thought it would be a good way of addressing a lot of the issues, kind of the issues that you see um, potentially in a soupy situation if you were able to uh, bargain standard redundancy clauses across the industry or that wage competition issue that we see in foodstuffs. BNZ has reported a higher full-year profit of $1.5 billion. With us is Chief Executive Dan Huggins. So, Dan, what was behind that higher net profit? Well, look, Jono, um, nice to have you and nice to see you again. Uh, look, really a, a game of two halves for us at the BNZ. We saw uh, you know, quite strong growth uh, in the first half and then and then things in the second half uh, became more challenging with, with the profit falling. You know, we have been able to grow the business across all segments in a competitive market. So we saw growth in our in our businesses. We saw growth um, with more households choosing the BNZ. So that's positive and it certainly helped contribute to the growth. So are you expecting net profit to fall from here? Well, we'll see. Look, as I said before, that we're looking for more Kiwi households to choose the BNZ and for us to be able to grow the bank off the back of that. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And hopefully, uh, if we're successful there, we'll be able to keep growing the bank from here. Have you seen a fall in mortgage arrears? Uh, we've, we have actually seen the number of customers who are in that 90 plus arrears come off. So there's about 255 of our customers who are in that 90 plus arrears. Um, that's slightly down on a customer basis, um, but the 17 basis points uh, is, is a couple of uh, points more than we saw on a dollar value. So it just depends on whether it's customers or value, uh, but, but reasonably flat. And what about lending? Is there demand to get a new mortgage if you're a consumer or business? Yeah, that's fallen off in the second half. So total lending um, in the mortgages space up about 5.3% for the year, but it was about 2.5% um, in the second half. So there's still demand there, but it's it's slowed down a little bit uh, in the second half versus what it was in the first. How would you describe the current economic environment as a trading bank? Oh, look, I think it's it's this difficult period of, of economic adjustment. You know, I've said for a while now that we were going to come into this more challenging period. We're in that now, um, you know, and, and we'd expect that to sort of continue for the next twelve months or so. Businesses are managing, uh, you know, but but it's a challenging environment, and and um, you know we need to support them through it over the next twelve months or so. But you're still able to make another high profit. Yeah, look, as, as I mentioned before, um, you know, we, we saw a, a strong first half, particularly as we saw the benefit of some of those OCR changes come through into the book. The second half, more challenging, uh, and things fell off a bit. 
What conversations have you had with the Commerce Commission about this result or its market study? Uh, I haven't talked to the Commerce Commission about uh, the result, but you know we're actively engaging with them uh, on on the market study. They've had a number of requests for data and, and perspectives from us, so we're actively engaging with them uh, on that. What sort of questions are they asking you at this point? Oh, look, they've asked for uh, information about about mortgages. They've asked for information about uh, transactional accounts, about switching, um, you know, a raft of, of information um, and, and questions uh, in those areas. Okay. And are you expecting to engage with them semi-regularly over the next year or so? Look, look we've, we've said to them we're available when they'd like to talk to us. So I'd imagine that um, you know, they'll talk to us you know, occasionally uh, when, 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 they, um, when they'd like to. Do you think this market study is helpful? I think anything that helps our, our customers and, and Kiwis get more confidence uh, in the financial industry and the financial sector you know, is, is helpful for everybody. Um, you know, so we hope that that's what it achieves. And have interest rates peaked, do you think? There are some calls that say the Reserve Bank may raise another 25 basis point late this year, early next year. But do you think we've reached a peak? Oh, that's, the, that's the million dollar question, Jono. Um, look, our, our view is that OCR's peaked, uh, that five and a half will be, uh, you know, as, as high as it gets. Then, you know, subject obviously to inflation, you know, continuing to come off, it's on the right trajectory. Um, you know, we think that, you know, we probably get back within band back into 2024. So hopefully we start to see rates coming coming down from there. So you might make a, you yeah, might you, make a lot of money, of course. Have you matched your uh, mortgage rate increases with the rate you've been increasing your term deposits? Actually, term deposit rates have gone up more than mortgages in the past 12 months um, and, and actually since the OCR went up. So uh, savers, uh, both in term deposit rates and in our on-call rapid save accounts, have seen their rates go up more than mortgage holders uh, have seen their rates go up. So like your comrades at other banks, you are well positioned to help your customers. Yeah, look, we we, we are. And um, you know, I'd certainly encourage customers to call us. I think we've shown you know, that we're really willing to stand behind customers. We've provided $50 million uh, worth of interest rate support. We've committed to that for our customers, you know, as we went through the floods and cyclones. Um, you know, I, I think, though it's difficult to tell, I think that's more than all the other banks combined. So, you know, we are really willing to stand behind our customers. They should call us. We're here to help. Do you still have a competitive edge to get customers from other banks? Well, we're seeing the business grow. We're seeing more Kiwis choose the BNZ, more households, more businesses. Um, you know, we offer a great product and great service. We've got amazing people, uh, you know, throughout the country to serve customers. So, um, you know, we, we are seeing the business grow and we want to we keep doing that. And how would you describe the next 12 months from here? Oh, look, I think um, it's just going to be a, a period of adjustment, lower growth, um, you know, and, and sort of challenging. Probably a softer landing than we perhaps thought 12 months ago, but but just a period we're going to need to work through lower growth um, with, with both our commercial customers um, and our households. So that's unemployment rising, inflation slowly trickling down. I think so, yeah. We do expect unemployment to come up a little bit, um, you know, really aligned with where the Reserve Bank sees it sort of in the mid-fives. Um, yeah, inflation, as you say, coming off um, and, and just lower growth, lower GDP growth um, over over that period through 24. Any milestones you're expecting in this new full year to report at this stage? What, what's the business up to? 
Oh, look, I mean, we are focused on serving our customers well. So the milestones for me, you know, are continuing to get more customers to choose the BNZ, growing our market share and, and really delivering for New Zealand. That's, that's why we exist, to serve our customers well and have more of them choose the BNZ. Dan Huggins, thanks for your time. Thanks, John. Nice talking. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The New Zealand Outpost of global consulting giant Accenture is looking to rapidly expand a new health practice following the appointment of former Spark Health Chief Executive Will Reedy. I'm joined by Will now. Will, thanks for taking the time. Why join Accenture in the first place? Yeah, kia ora and talofa, Hamish. Uh, yes, uh, it's my second stint at Accenture. I last worked for them 20 years ago in the UK and Europe in terms of transforming health systems. I took the opportunity to join Accenture Aotearoa six months ago. Uh, and there's kind of three things that kind of attracted me to Accenture Aotearoa. The first was being on the executive team or the leadership team. Uh, in terms of growing Accenture Aotearoa and and focusing on a mission which is to unlock the world's uh, best ideas to shape the future of Aotearoa. So that was kind of the first attraction, working with a fantastic leadership team to further grow Accenture Aotearoa. The second part was, given the transformation within the health system uh, with the formation of Te Whātua there were some unique things that Accenture was doing globally in healthcare um, that attracted me to working with them and thinking about the best of global capability and how we could bring that to New Zealand to deliver improved health outcomes. And the third thing that attracted me to Accenture Aotearoa and the health role was being part of the global health team. So since I joined them six months ago, I've started working offshore in Asia, uh, the Middle East, the US and, and over uh, in Australia as well. So it provided me with the ability to work on exciting uh, innovation projects, for example, around generative AI uh, as part of understanding what um, the art of the possible was and thinking about that context here in New Zealand. So Te Order health system generally has been obviously very public issue over the last year or so, if not longer. I mean, is it all public-facing work or is there some private work in there as well? Yeah, good question. So there's a mixture of public and private. Uh, we think in Accenture Hauora, our health and wellness practice, we think about um, health as being health provision, uh, but also the supporting life sciences. So that's the pharmaceutical industry, the health insurance industry, uh, the medical devices industry, and an industry that's uh, developing very fast globally, which is the biotech industry, thinking about uh, DNA as an example. Uh, so from our perspective, we have the public health sector, the private health sector, the medical devices industry as well, um, and some health insurers. Does the change in government change potentially the workflow or scope of the work that you're looking to do in the public sector? Uh, no, we're, we're in a unique position where some of the things that we're doing nationally have been national programs for some time and they will continue on in terms of the investment that Te Whatawata is making on behalf of the public health system. So very outcomes focused programs, improving experiences for New Zealanders, uh, providing a foundation for transforming the health system with data. So um, certainly uh, these programs will continue because they're national enablers of a, of a newly formed national health system. Have you had the hard word or expecting the hard word on, on cost, given all the consulting rhetoric early in the year as well? Yeah, I think that rhetoric has been around for seven or eight months now. And I guess my view of that is unique to New Zealand. Uh, we, we think about the formation of the National Health Service 
uh, and that's fantastic. Um, but actually, it's a merger of 28 organisations, and I can't remember a new, recent New Zealand kind of corporate history, and even in Australia, the merging of one or two organisations to, to together is, is actually usually pretty transformative and, and challenging, uh, but 28 entities um, is, is a real challenge. And uh, I guess as, you, as these 28 entities are brought together, things are looked at with a national lens. So I think some of the rhetoric, some of the thinking uh, from Te Whatua around spend and focus and outcomes is absolutely needed. And my experience from doing similar projects um, on the the, if you like the Tefata Water side offshore, uh, and also on the on the vendor and consulting side, is that's common is just to have a look at what's been going on um, within each entity, and as you come to a national entity, you're just rethinking some of that focus and spend as a result. So, given I mean, I guess Accenture's global reach, but also your own global experience as well. I mean, where do you see New Zealand's health system broadly in terms of its transformation, its use of digital and data? Yeah, so. Uh, I think uh, my experience in the last 25 years is New Zealand's at the start of that journey. Um, so I guess the formation of Te Order about 17 or 18 months ago uh, is, is, is it's early in the, its journey. Um, my experience in working offshore, particularly in the UK and in, in Asia um, and in Australia, is these transformations usually have a five to ten year uh, tenure. Um, and it's often the first one to two years that are kind of foundational for that transformation. So uh, great to start. What I, what I do love about the transformation is the focus on the future health system. So thinking out to 2032 and what health could look like for New Zealanders with a focus on health and wellness. And what are the shifts? So not getting too caught up in what the challenges are, but what are the five shifts that we're aiming to have achieved in a stepwise manner over the next 10 years? So I think... That is a unique thing that we've done in New Zealand. Um, I also think, and it's not well known, um, I've been travelling offshore over the last few weeks, is the formation of Te Akafai Ora is a world first, a global indigenous health authority. So there are some things that are part of the merge and becoming a national health service, and some of the things that we're looking to do are actually world leading. Mm. Um, and so great to be started um, and, and progressing in the right direction. The other thing to share with you in terms of your question is, yeah, I'm a big believer that uh, for some of the things we need to do to transform healthcare in New Zealand, that data and digital services are a key enabler. It is about the people and it is about the process change and the adoption of those technologies, um, but they are a core enabler of, of helping with that transformation. Finally then, just the, the size and shape of your team roughly, are you looking to expand as well over the next little while? Yeah, so it's been a, a busy six months growing the Accenture Haora Fano. Uh, so we're a team of six at the moment in terms of that core health industry experience. And then we rely on our, uh, I guess, our service groups to deliver the value to our customers. There's about another 40 or 50 people working on some of the significant programs across the public and private health sector. Um, we will continue to grow the team. Uh, we're in this unique position uh, where we've got a global health team that I'm a part of and, and certainly there's a number of people wanting to come and work in New Zealand on some of the uh, thought leading innovative things that we're looking to achieve for New Zealanders Well thanks very much for your time Thanks Amish And that's been this week's People in Business Thanks for listening If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion head over to nbr.co.nz